Hi, everybody. Uh, a very warm welcome uh, to the London School of Economics uh, on this uh, rather damp and cold evening. It's fantastic to see uh, so many people here. This is the biggest crowd that has ever attended an information event at the LSE. Sort of. Anyway, very warm welcome. My name's Charlie Beckett. I'm the um, person who is, who is leading the LSE Truth, Trust and Technology uh, Commission. Uh, I'm a professor in the Department of Media and Communications here at the LSE. Uh, the event tonight is uh, actually part of the LSE's uh, New World Disorders uh, program. It's leading up to a big fest festival in February and March uh, next year. Uh, tickets will be available from January. Um, and this is, of course, the launch uh, for the uh, report of the LSE Truth, Trust and Technology Commission, um, which we actually uh, put online, of course, uh, yesterday. And I'm sure you've all read all 15,000 words and the appendices. Uh, if you do go online, uh, not only is the report, but there's a whole stack of other uh, background papers and other information resources there, including a great uh, little video as well. Uh, in a moment, what we're going to do, we've got Professor Sonia Livingston, who was the chair of the Commission. Uh, we've got uh, Dr. Damien Tambini, who was the Special Advisor to the Commission. They're both from colleagues from uh, my department. And we're, we've got the journalist Polly Curtis here, who's also going to respond. Um, she's on the Cairncross inquiry into the future of the uh, newspaper industry in the UK, although she's here in a personal uh, capacity. I wanted to explain very quickly uh, what the Commission was about before we hear some of the content from Sonia and Damien. And at the end, of course, we want to have time to go to get your uh, views as well. Uh, the Commission was conceived, if you like, like so many good things, after the election of President Trump and the Brexit vote. Um, at that time, that, if you cast your minds back, there was a lot of excitement about uh, so-called fake news. Uh, and it struck us, us that um, you know, we should respond uh, as, as researchers in the department, uh, but also in a public way. And we felt that this should not be led by a kind of political partisan anger um, or a moral panic about uh, technology. We wanted to ask some bigger questions. Uh, we wanted to ask what kind of information society do we want? Uh, how can we protect de uh, democracy uh, from digital damage, and how can we help people make the most of the extraordinary opportunities uh, uh, of the internet and social media while avoiding the harm it can cause. Now, there's lots of obviously academic questions uh, that uh, we research, uh, but we wanted to engage with what was clearly uh, a very fast-moving policy agenda at a very important moment. I mean, this really has been, I think, an extraordinary year uh, when our attitudes, uh, especially perhaps to the uh, digital platforms uh, and our concern around information in general has changed significantly. We focused on the UK, but obviously this is an international global set of issues. So for the last year, uh, we've been working uh, with politicians, technologists, journalists, academics, 
and others from a range of sectors and indeed from civil society organisations. We've had loads of workshops and seminars, uh, we've engaged at public events and of course we've met with lots of people. Uh, we tried at least to cut across the usual interests and put the citizen at the heart of the debate. Uh, we've come up in this report with some policy suggestions for concrete action, but we also thought it was important to uh, try to spend time in it analysing you know, what really is uh, the problem, uh, finding, trying to find evidence of the problems that are caused, and giving a wider analysis of the kind of policy uh, strategies that you might adopt. The central uh, message from the report is that we think this is a real problem, um, we think that uh, interventions are going to be very difficult and complex, but that action is uh, both uh, possible uh, and indeed necessary. And that any approach to this uh, must be structural and joined up because it is a systematic problem. Uh, and also, of course, this is an incredibly rapidly evolving uh, set of issues. Not a day goes past without some new kind of revelation, new, some new kind of insight. So any response to it uh, necessarily has to be uh, flexible. Uh, and above all, I would say, uh, it must, any response must avoid uh, causing uh, damage to the diversity and openness of debate and freedom of expression. In the, in the end, uh, we hope that the report and tonight's debate uh, will help at least inform uh, the conversation that we need to have about what we used to call fake news um, and whatever has caused the current state, uh, whatever has caused the current state of uh, politics uh, and the media in the UK, uh, we would argue that there's no doubt that better information and better uh, deliberation and debate is more needed than ever before. I want to end quickly before I hand over to Sonia just to say a huge, huge thank you uh, to uh, all my LSE colleagues uh, who have worked so hard on this, uh, way beyond the realms of their normal responsibilities, but also, of course, the hundreds of people from outside the LSE uh, who have contributed to this. It's been a fascinating and exhausting process. Um, and the amount of, for me at least, the, uh, the amount of response and engagement uh, proves to me that people really do care about the quality of information uh, in our society. And uh, of course I invite you to add your views and ideas tonight, but also uh, hereafter. This is a continuing process. But first of all, I'd like to invite Sonia to come up and start explaining what this report is about. Thanks very much. Thank you, Charlie. If I flip on... Is there a picture of the report? Yeah, just go forward. Ah. There. Good. So the report is online, and we hope um, that you will read it, even if you haven't um, had time um, thus far. It was only released yesterday. Um, so it's a great pleasure to see everyone here today, and I would like to um, begin by adding my thanks to the um, many people who worked incredibly hard on producing this report, partly because it is as concise and short as we could make it. It's not um, your typical um, incredibly long report, but it has had a lot of discussion and a lot of consultation. 
And one of the things I found interesting is that when we began the consultation process for the Commission, the, the sense of a problem of quickly dispersed into lots of different problems on closer examination, and each of these problems turned out to be of a different kind, and not all of them were even very new, despite the sense of urgency over so-called fake news. So one of the things we argue in the report is that what's new is the present critical juncture of multiple shifts on both long and short timescales that have brought us to this moment. So we suggest that this critical juncture, this sense of urgency and concern that, is, that has brought you here this evening, um, is marked by the predictable but also the unintended consequences of some profound shifts in the globalized information and communication ecology. And these are, of course, due in large part to the rapid rise to the dominance of huge digital platforms, which tend to escape state oversight and regulation, and in parallel, threaten, or relatedly threaten, the already fragile business models of established news producers. Add to this the damage caused by some particularly bad actors, and many more who should have known better, um, together with the surprising outcomes of some recent elections, and this, this critical juncture suddenly made itself very um, much felt in the public sphere, and that's where it gained the problematic um, but instantly recognisable label of fake news. In the middle of this, um, perhaps my particular interest, um, and positioned simultaneously as victim and perpetrator, are the ordinary people, the general public, the news audience, the social media users. I call, they, they, they can be called the victim because in the fake news debate, I can't keep doing scare quotes, please take them as always present every time I say that, um, Ordinary people are positioned as the victim, vulnerable to misinformation, easily nudged and manipulated, lacking in the necessary critical media literacy. At the same time, they're the perpetrator. They're culpable for sharing fake news, for making bad choices, for preferring emotional drama and entertaining content over responsible journalism. In analysing the struggles of the general public faced with today's crisis of information, we hope it's not too grand, perhaps it is, to call up the memory of liberal economist William Beveridge, who in 1942 grounded the argument for the welfare state in an <coughs> indictment of five giant evils in society, squalor, ignorance, want, idleness and disease. In our thinking for the Commission, this metaphor of five giant evils provoked us to look for the different kinds of evidence relevant to the different kinds of harm, to try to gauge their scale and reach, and to counter or question some of the many claims being made about, how people, about people as victims or perpetrators. For depending how we evaluate all these different claims being made about the problem, different kinds of solutions come into play. So... We have five giant evils of the information crisis for you to consider. So I'll just say very briefly something about each of these. And you'll begin to see how the problem both kind of um, uh, spreads in, in multiple directions but also somehow um, holds together. So in relation to confusion, the first, 
Um, the evidence shows the public is less sure about what's true and about who to believe. And we can see confusion being generated by rapid media change, bringing an abundance of sources available on a plurality of platforms that leave people disorientated. That confusion is itself kind of driven by an advertising model that hardwires the continuous targeting of hyper-partisan views that play into people's fears and prejudices. And it's increased by what the Council of Europe's report on information disorder called information pollution at a global scale. Cynicism. We can see that citizens are losing trust even in newsworthy sources. And this is a global trend. In America, survey results suggest the average American viewed at least one fake news story in the months leading to the 2016 election, with more than half of them saying they believe the fake news stories. In Europe, evidence from surveys indicates young people are less trusting of news media, less likely to think news media are doing a good job in their key responsibilities. Cynicism is amplified by the deliberate exploitation of system vulnerabilities through information warfare and the spread of false information, destabilizing public confidence and fomenting social antagonism. Fragmentation. So although citizens have access to potentially infinite information, the pool of agreed facts on which to base societal choices is diminishing. There's evidence that citizens are becoming more divided into truth publics with parallel realities and narratives online. And, and yet, interestingly, even the most, the most enthusiastic users of social media have been shown to go to a wider range of information sources than those who, go, who rarely go online, raising questions about some of our now and then comparisons. Irresponsibility. So this clearly arises because power over meaning is held by organizations who we suggest lack a developed ethical code of responsibility, organizations that exist outside clear lines of accountability and transparency. The use and abuse of platforms is amplifying the reach of misinformation in politics, health, education, and more. And the absence of transparent standards for moderating content and signposting quality can mean the undermining of confidence in authorities and declining public trust in science and research. And last, apathy as citizens begin to disengage from society as they lose faith in democracy itself. So the Reuters Institute a Digital News Report, among others, shows that in the UK there's declining trust in both government and the technological companies insofar as they could be expected to act in the public interest. And a well-established tactic of information warfare is to sap morale by continuous attrition through the propagation of misinformation. So in combination, these evils are a threat at multiple levels and in different spheres, from encompassing individual decision-making and the working of democratic government. We argue that they should be addressed through a systematic and robust response, which is both multidimensional and coordinated. I've been particularly interested listening through the um, debates about during the process of the Commission how much it is often hoped and how much it becomes a, a kind of ambition that we could deal with much of, these, much of this problem by teaching people to figure out what's fake and what's real. 
Can we teach people to understand the digital environment, to take responsibility for their own news choices and the decisions they make as a result? But education, I say this with hesitancy in a university, education is no silver bullet solution. And it especially should not be called upon merely because the other solutions seem to be too difficult, so it becomes, as it were, the policy of last resort. So this is not to argue against educating the public, and it's a really important part of our proposals that the report calls for an urgent, integrated program in media literacy, both for children and for adults, both for those in education and, challenging but important, for those who are no longer in education. Crucially, this cannot be done in a kind of one-shot awareness-raising campaign. It's going to take investment, but we believe it will repay dividends. But we cannot teach what's unlearnable, and much of today's digital environment defies the power of teachers to teach it. In other words, for people to know what to trust, they need markers of credibility, information about sources, ways to check information, forms of recourse when they've been conned. We need some codes, standards and policies whose purpose is to build the capacity for individuals to act and to act as citizens. Without intervening in the media Without intervening in the information environment through policy and regulation, we risk tasking the individual with dealing with the complexities and problems of today's information crisis. And these are problems um, we task individuals with when governments themselves are struggling um, to manage. So the risk is that we not only burden, but we also come to blame the individual for the problems of the digital environment. Going back to Beveridge, Beveridge demanded proposals for, that, that proposals for improvements should transcend sectoral and sectional interests, that we should build a comprehensive policy for social progress, that we should enjoin the state and the individual in a cooperative uh, vision. And in our commission, of course, we hope to do all of that and also to enjoin the efforts of the private sector by one means or another. So I don't propose that we are um, suggesting an equivalent of the NHS. Um, but I do think that this commission is part of an equally far-reaching process shaping the digital infrastructure for democratic society. I don't think, too, that we have all the answers in our report, but I take heart from observing that many other actors in other countries, including this one, are now contributing their expertise to this larger debate. And many of those voices are beginning to converge on a new way forward. So for our particular proposals and recommendations, I'm now going to turn the floor to Damien Tambini. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sonia, and thank you uh, to all of you for coming. I remember when we were just launching the Commission, I had a conversation with a colleague at another university. Let's just call it a large, old university in Oxfordshire. <laughs> um, and I said, I won't mention his name, we, we've launched a commission on truth, trust, and technology. And he raised one eyebrow and he said, ambitious. <laughs> so, 
now you can, now you can understand why. Um, we don't have all the answers, but we're part of an ongoing conversation. I'm not going to propose or present all of the recommendations, and there are lots of recommendations. I recommend you read the report. I'm going to uh, give you some, some headlines. <coughs> Charlie started off by talking about politics, and uh, it is partly about politics. But this crisis, as you can see from these evils, is really not just about politics or party politics. Um, it's about much more than that, in fact. It's about uh, health information, if you think about information on vaccines and the kind of misinformation that has gone on around that. It's about emergency information. It's even about national security. One of the sobering things about going through the process of doing this commission is that we still don't know how big a problem this is. There is a huge problem of evidence and a huge problem of research. And part of, I think, what the Commission is about is responding to that problem. We do have a clear approach, which is to say that media system change is a key independent factor in explaining the crisis of information. It's not just that there are bad actors out there who are, with new means, seeking to is exploit vulnerabilities. It is that the system as a whole has become less resilient. If you like, the truth filters of news and journalism are failing. So we're not the only people responding to this. There are lots and lots of initiatives out there. Reports hit my desk twice a week. There are lots of proposals. We're one, propo one set of proposals in a, in a big market. There have been calls for a new Office of Responsible Technology, calls for a new duty of care, which is applied to platforms, even calls to break up the big platforms, to regulate them, to alter the liability arrangements. We do discuss these proposals in the report, but we're mindful of the fact that there is a danger of an overreaction, that regulation may cause more problem, problems than it solves. So regulation could undermine freedom of expression. I noticed some colleagues from Article 19, that marvellous freedom of expression organisation, are here this evening. It could also change the market structure and raise barriers to entry. It could lock in dominant players. So we need to tread very carefully. And these are relatively early days in this new public policy game. In developing our recommendations, our aim has been to ask from the start, what needs to be done now? Where are the points of agreement and overlap and consensus, given that policy, like politics, is the art of the possible? We don't see our proposals as necessarily as competitors to the other proposals out there, but we see them as complementary and part of an ongoing dialogue about how to resolve to what we see as a real crisis and a, and a new public policy crisis that we haven't faced before. Our approach is also to argue that we're not alone. There is a lot happening out there already. The publishers, the news providers are doing a lot. 
The platforms are doing a huge amount. Parliaments and public authorities are responding already in a number of ways. Punters, through their media literacy and their increasing critical skills, they're also responding. So we think um, we need to work with the grain of those kinds of initiatives, and in particular, with the grain in a way which supports what Honora O'Neill in her 2002 Reef Lectures, and if you haven't heard or read them, go back to them. She predicted a lot of what has gone wrong. What Honora O'Neill described as accessibility, the ability through contextual information to understand whether information should be trusted. So platforms, uh, publishers, first of all, are working hard to improve trust through, through accessibility. They're improving the quality of their product. They're trying in difficult circumstances to come up with new business models for funding it. And above all, they're working on what we call in the report credibility signaling. Flags, tags, labels, systems of information provision to signal whether information should be trusted. Accessibility, as Honora O'Neill described it. So alongside this activity by publishers and news providers, platforms are doing their bit to an extent and with, within uh, the constraints they face also. They are also tagging and flagging and working to adjust their algorithms to signal to users and, to, and also to demote less trustworthy content. There are obvious problems that go with this, of course. Problems of privatized censorship and a lack of transparency. And these activities can actually undermine trust. So parliaments and public authorities are developing new rules and standards, working in terms of encouraging co-regulation, as we've seen at the European level, shifting the dial to, an, to a certain extent on liability for illegal content, and tinkering with taxation, funding, and charitable status to support journalism. So they're looking at all sorts of initiatives right now. It's a hugely important moment, I think, in public policy terms. As Sonia said, it's a critical juncture. This will make my students smile. Um, finally, punters, people, users. If users do not act responsibly, we are in trouble. So media literacy is on everyone's lips, and there, there are many organizations working to improve it. But there are a number of problems with these existing initiatives. I've got to mention two. First of all, information. There's a huge evidence gap. So in this data-driven moment, there is a paradox. Everything is hugely more knowable in the age of big data, in terms of the flow of opinion, the state of misinformation and disinformation. But we know much less about it. Or rather, we know much less about it. And others, maybe on the west coast of uh, the United States, know a great deal. Facebook, in particular, has new schemes to promote access for researchers, academic researchers and others, 
to their data in order to study these and other problems. But there are delays, there are resource difficulties. This is on Facebook's terms, and after all, it is only Facebook. It's not all of the other players in the market. Second problem with the well-intentioned response of the players. There's a problem of coordination. We're talking about collaboration between competing organizations, organizations that are involved in cutthroat competition, (laughs) conflict across markets, and intense conflict along the market, the the value chain. Platforms and publishers are uh, being expected to collaborate to solve the problem of misinformation when they're involved in a huge zero-sum game. So this conflict is about money, and self-regulation and regulation is often a weapon in that battle. And the result is that flags, tags, and media literacy lacks coordination, and consumers and citizens suffer. So our contention is that self-regulation will not fix this without help. So we're proposing an intervention that deals with those problems and improves information and coordination. We're proposing an independent platform authority, not a regulator, but what we describe in the report as a watchdog with a policy advice and observatory function. This should be funded by a levy on uh, advertising revenue of platforms, and it should have a number of duties to report on trends and news information sharing according to a methodological framework which can be subject to an open consultation. In particular, it should report on the effectiveness of self-regulation of the large news-carrying and so- of social and search platforms. It should support media literacy. It should support policymaking through reporting to Parliament on the performance of self-regulation and the potential long-term needs for regulatory action. It should provide reports to other regulatory agencies that have been having difficulty performing their functions due to a lack of access to platform-held data. And it should work closely with Ofcom and the Competition and Markets Authority to monitor market domination and their impact on media plurality. Underlying all of these things must be enhanced powers to access data. We need to know more about those processes of opinion formation in society in order simply to understand the size of the problem and the necessity of further public policy interventions. So there are other recommendations in the report to support journalism, to think about funding of journalism, to respond to some of the specific problems that arise in relation to election legitimacy. But the centrepiece is this proposal for a platform agency. This is a big intervention. It's 
an institutional intervention that we think is necessary now to change the game, to provide enhanced information and to make sure that that coordination between self-regulator initiatives can be successful. It must make sure that the next phase of policy development is based on better evidence and above all, it must be independent from government. So for some time, people have said nothing can be done. Nothing can be done about the harms on the internet. Nothing can be done about the harms associated with the concentration of power and economic resources in a few platforms and intermediaries that are based in other countries. It is not true that nothing can be done. Ultimately, if the harms associated with these technologies continue to grow or to continue to impact democracy, there are many things that can be done. In competition law, for example, and also fiscal incentives can be provided which would have a, um, a major impact on the behavior of the platforms <coughs> in a variety of ways. We're not yet at that moment when we know precisely the mix of these uh, very important uh, tools that is necessary. We do know that a new policy settlement for the platforms is coming, and we need to prepare for that. We need to prepare by supporting and monitoring self-regulation and by improving the information available to Parliament and to the public. I hope you agree that there are some actions that we can all agree that need to be taken in the short term to achieve this. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Damien. And over now to Polly Curtis. Thank you, Polly. Hi. So, yeah, I'm Polly Curtis. Um, I am on the Cairncross um, panel, which is advising Dame Frances Cancross um, on her independent inquiry into the future of high-quality news. Um, but I'm actually here as a journalist, as someone who's spent a career in newsrooms, um, 16 years at The Guardian, and most recently as editor-in-chief of HuffPost in the UK. Um, and what Charlie's asked me to do is really give a kind of real-world newsroom response to this report and talk about some of the challenges that are really well explored within this report from the point of view of news organizations. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is it's really hard out there for news organizations. There are huge pressures on them. There's, there's two main things, really. The first is the crisis in trust and fake news that we've been hearing about today. Um, that has really challenged every single newsroom in the country to up its game and think more about how it presents its facts, how it reaches its audience, and how it navigates a world where there is a lot of bad information as well. Um, the second big challenge, challenge is that crisis in the economic model, which is closely linked with the trust question as well. Um, so all businesses um, that produce news are now fighting for new revenue streams. And the combination of those make it a really, really difficult moment for the news industry. 
Um, that was really um, demonstrated last week when Johnston Press, the local news group, went into administration. Seems to have got a rescue plan, but um, it really is a, demonstrating that a lot of these organisations are no longer viable on an advertising model. Um, of those two challenges, the crisis of trust and the crisis in the business model, um, the actors that are challenging newsrooms are similar. It's Facebook, it's Google, it's the big platforms that are not only spreading fake news or bad information, but also taking away a lot of that advertising money that has kept news going for so long. Um, so the relationship, as, as Damien rightly mentioned, between newsrooms and the platforms is really quite tense. It's really quite acrimonious at times. Um, but I think it's, it's often acrimonious because it's, it's kind of portrayed by the news industry as being kind of journalism being the victim of these technological giants that are taking away their money and polluting the digital ecosystem. Um, I would challenge it in some ways as well. I think what has actually happened is Facebook and Google came along and won the advertising game. They had a better model. They could demonstrate the impact of advertising better. Um, and that's just a reality we have to face up to and find new ways of producing high-quality news that isn't advertising dependent. Um, and then I think the other thing to remember as well is, again, something Damien touched on, is that news organisations haven't always helped themselves really well. If 10 years ago we had got together and stopped rowing between ourselves and um, seen the threat of the platforms and really gone for them, we would have been formidable. And there are ways in which big news groups are now working together, um, but it is really too late. It's a bleak picture, but I want to offer like one really good chink of light in all of that for news. Um, Five years ago, when there was still money in um, digital advertising and increasing amounts of money, and we thought that digital advertising was going to replace the money we were losing in print in a lot of organizations, um, a lot of news organizations responded by publishing more and more, and the quality of even good outfits went down and down. And I think that is one element that also contributed to the bad information environment. Now that the fake news row has happened and that trust is the premium, I actually think you see the established brands focusing in on who they really are and what their audience really is and doing better journalism as a result. If you're the Times behind a paywall, you've got to be absolutely focused on producing um, the best journalism that your audience is going to pay for. If you're the Guardian, you need to be true to your mission so your membership um, people will, will pay their membership fees. Um, if you're the FT, you've got to have the best financial information. It's making us sharper, I think. I thought I would just give a few kind of reflections to the report from my kind of experience in newsrooms um, and, and also in, in engaging with audiences in the newsrooms I've worked in. Um, the, the points around media literacy are really fantastic um, and I think particularly good because 
Um, everybody agrees there should be media literacy. What I've not seen in any other place is people talking about media literacy having to happen all the way through our lives. And I think that's really important now. It's not something we can just teach kids in schools. I think actually quite often younger people and children are more savvy about these things than some of the older generations as well. So I think that's a really fantastic um, uh, recommendation to make. The, the slide that was up before about the five evils, I really, really saw um, so much kind of interaction I've had with the audiences of places I've worked at in those slides. Um, I recently sat in on a series of focus groups talking to people about how they feel about news and how they access news. And it was, it, there was a quote in my mind that matched each of those bubbles on the wall. Um, I think that loss of trust and that turning away from news. We, you know, in one of these focus groups, we asked about Brexit, and everyone went, "Oh God, like that," and then said, "Just tell us when it's over." Um, <laughs> um, so we, so I, I think that is a really, really sharp analysis of where audiences are now. I think the question in my mind is around regulation versus self-regulation and which way to go on that. Um, and I think kind of like on, from a very personal point of view, like maybe a few weeks ago, um, the self-regulation argument I, I would have agreed with, but I think things are moving so quickly in this world at the moment, and there are a number of things which I'll, I'll take you through now that have happened in recent days and weeks that I think are just changing that as we, you know, as, as we think about these things. The first is the New York Times really incredible um, expose on Facebook last week. What, what I took away from that was the fact that Facebook is not only responsible for disseminating bad information, but it, it was creating it as well, as well about its opponents. And I think that changes the game. They need a reckoning. They need to be held account, to account for that. Um, the second thing that I wanted to mention also um, relates to Facebook and the fact that this week they announced a scheme to pay for the training of 80 local journalists in the UK. Um, and um, some people have interpreted this as a kind of PR trick, and yeah, it is. It's to be welcomed. Anything that's putting money into newsrooms now, I welcome. Um, but the fact is what they're doing is trying to see off the regulation that's coming down the track. They're trying to see off the pressures that are building on them to give something back and be responsible for the impact they're having on the world. And I don't think they should be di dictating the terms on that. Um, and then the last thing, I wanted to read a quote from Tim Cook, um, the boss of Apple, who told Axios this week, um, generally speaking, I am not a fan of regulation. I'm a believer in the free market. But we have to admit when the free market is not working, and it hasn't worked here, I think it's inevitable that there will be some level of regulation. If Tim Cook is saying it, if Facebook is anticipating it, if Google is anticipating it, I think it is inevitable now. And the key question is how are we going to do this so that it doesn't have unintended consequences? In my mind, the important thing about regulation would be that you hold platforms to account for the information on it just as publishers are held to account um, for the quality and the um, veracity of that information. Um, and the second point being, they have these huge profits, um, and it's profiting on the back of our journalism. 
the revenue share with um, newsrooms has to be fairer. Um, but I would also highlight two big risks in there as well. One is that if you take money from the platforms and put it into journalism to improve the quality of information on the internet, um, you have to make sure that you're not freezing in time the system we have now because the journalism industry we have now is not sustainable. We need innovation to create new revenue streams and new ways of reaching audiences so that, so that we have a future in news. It's really, really important. And the second point, um, if you were to regulate the platforms, you have to say what a platform is, because The Guardian's a platform, because the BBC's got platforms um, with huge audiences, and um, we really must not um, start regulating free press in all of this. This needs to be really focused um, at the platforms. Um, but overall, I just wanted to say I'm like hugely impressed by this bit of work. Um, the Ken Cross Inquiry has been thinking through similar issues but from a very particular viewpoint and it is a really, really complex piece of work. So to come out with something that is so um, cohesive is, is really impressive. And most importantly, something that puts the citizens at the heart of it. Because I'm standing here representing journalists, but actually what's important is that citizens get good information so that we have a healthy democracy, not that industries of any kind thrive, but that we have healthy democracy. Thank you. I think that we should go straight to uh, the audience to uh, ask you if you've got any questions. You're even allowed a bit of a comment, but try and put a question mark at the end of it. So can I start right over there, uh, the person with the grey jacket? Sorry, wait for the mic. Thanks a lot. Um, my name's Lucy Dargahi, and I work for the House of Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, um, who've been doing a lot of work in this area. Um, I wanted to pick up on something that you said, Polly, about how the platforms have, like, won the digital advertising space, like they have a better model. And I wondered what you thought about... I, I was interested in what you said there, because part of me personally thinks it's not that they've won, is that they are subject to no transparency and no accountability at the moment. Mm. So is it that they've won or is it that they're flouting the rules with no regulation and any other publisher would be subject, you know, if they tried to micro-target in the same way that Facebook and the other platforms do, they would be subject to more rules, more regulation, more oversight, but, but these co American-based companies aren't. So is it, is it, have they won or are they just flouting the rules? I think that's a really, really good point. Um, when you actually look at how those um, ad tech systems work and... Um, where the value for money is in that digital advertising chain. Um, there are a lot of questions about whether there's value for money there. I, th I do think ultimately people who are spending money on advertising now expect the level of data and targeting and demonstration that Facebook and Google can give them. Um, it's not, you know, the thing that Google always say is we didn't kind of we didn't beat you at your own game, we reinvented the game um, because search, search um, advertising is very different to digital display advertising. Um, but I think the point you raise is absolutely right. There needs to be a kind of thorough... There's, a, there's no transparency of how those ad tech systems work um, and 
those should be exposed. Right. Let's take another question. Let's keep... Let's go let's turn around. There's a gentleman in the yellow. I will move my way across. Don't worry. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you for the talk. Um, I'm from Beaver. I'm an LC student as well. I just want to ask two questions. First one is more technical question. How do you have an institution that can that can comment on, on the veracity of the press, especially across when you consider the fact that so much misinformation is across countries' borders where there are so many different community ecosystems from America where it's very partisan to countries in Asia, for example, where the media is so suppressed and governments are actually talking about using fake news laws to suppress free press. And second question is more of a fundamental question. How do you have how do you have an institution talk about um, establishing trust again in the media when the base trust in institutions is already gone. Yeah, that's two questions. Yeah, really Thank good you. questions. And by the way, I hope everyone enjoyed the fact we, I managed to get the acronym IPA as... Uh, <laughs> 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 Damien, I think it's one for you very much. Um, thanks. For, that's a really excellent question. Mm. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned um, that you're an LSE student because um, I'm going to quote Karl Popper at you. Um, I mean, my reading of Popper is that, I paraphrase, um, it's actually quite difficult to establish, without any doubt, the veracity of a statement. But it's rather easier to establish that something is demonstrably false. And I think that that fundamental distinction underlies a lot of the existing self-regulation. So, for example, Article 1 of the old Press Complaints Commission Code which is now the IPSO code, very similar to the IMPRESS code, which regulate newspapers, it doesn't say that the regulator will determine whether a statement is true or false. It says that the journalist and the publication should endeavour to, in, to ensure, to the best of their ability, that a statement is accurate. And... Uh, One of the things that we were worried about and thought about a lot when we were thinking about our recommendations is the old kind of um, line that ultimately we're going to be recommending a ministry of truth. Um, And we've we've been at pains. Even if if you Google ministry of truth and try it, what comes up is the University of London Library. (laughs) Um, Senate House. Um, Even if, um, you know, we are committed to truth, we're not completely relativist about truth, Uh, we say that truth is a pragmatic achievement which should be uh, arrived at in a way which is decentralised in society, which is an achievement uh, which is based on deliberation, and that deliberation must be independent of the state and other centres of power in society. So any regulatory response over the next generation or so while we sort out some of these huge problems needs to reflect those fundamental issues. It is not about saying whether a statement is true or false. It's about that pragmatic adjudication of whether people have taken reasonable endeavours to ensure that it is not false. Okay. Let's keep rolling through the questions. Uh, let's go to the left here. Uh, there, the lady in sort of red, purple, there, there. 
Uh, hi. So you spoke about the media literacy project that needs to be done, uh, you know, for to, for fighting fake news. But I was just wondering, how do you ensure that when there is a huge difference in terms of the skill sets of people, in terms of access to resources? So it's going to be a huge task. And how do you achieve it? I personally don't think it's very feasible. Um, Sonia. <laughs> Sonia, I think this is definitely you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, in my in my darker moments, I absolutely agree with you. Um, yeah, but well, what I hear in a number of countries is increased efforts in media literacy. So let's say some steps forward, that seems a good thing. Um, a number of countries are talking about um, coordinated strategies, are tasking a, a, an institution with the responsibility, are, pri- are raising the priority for media literacy in the schools. In schools, it's, in a way, it's more feasible. It's kind of surprising and deeply regrettable that we haven't been prioritizing media education in this country for so long because there we have, as it were, the, the captive audience to teach and we have um, those who are most keen on learning about the digital environment precisely ready to learn about their information uh, environment in, in changing digital context. So, you know, that could have been a much easier task we just missed that one completely and now we have to absolutely prioritize in schools but for um you know the 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 adult public who are not easily reached i think we have to start by thinking so what who who reaches them um and it's all kinds of organizations including libraries including civil society bodies including the media themselves (laughs) including the platforms themselves. So I think what we're trying to say is the education and the ideas and the resources can come from lots of different places, but what's needed is something that draws them together so that there's some kind of oversight or, sh- or sharing of the different resources and especially some uh, championing, some encouragement and some um, efforts to um, evaluate progress so that people can see that something is really being learned and reached. And the irony is, you know, it is the media that reach everybody. And so encouraging them to be, uh, to provide those self-critical and critical resources for the audience is a, is a tough ask. But I think some of them are also now beginning to say this is something that they should do. Yeah. And I don't know if Polly would agree with this, but I think in a sense that you can see some evidence, which I guess is sort of anecdotal still, that even the fake news Ferrari has been a media literacy exercise. People yeah. are yeah. conscious yeah. that there's something strange going out there, that they might not mm-hmm. be trusting everyone, yeah. and that journalists as well are learning mm. that they have to improve perhaps the way they, they mm. make their stuff literate. They make their content more believable and accessible, accessible, accessible yeah. as well. Accessible. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that, that's absolutely right. And I think so much of what newsrooms are thinking about is how they talk in a different way to their audiences um, to really be relatable and gain that trust. Um, I think about a couple of things we did at HuffPost. We, we decided that as a digital brand, we needed to actually get out and meet people and be a real-world experience as well. So we did things like relocate our newsroom to Birmingham and do an open newsroom and bring people in. You look at new media ventures like Tortoise, which is all about bringing people into the conversation. I think kind of real-life experience of journalists is really important. 
Excellent. Right, where should, good God, where should we go? How should I do this? We should go right to the very back, actually. Um, sorry, uh, stewards. I think we should go zooming right to the very back row in the middle. Can we do that? Right, very back row in the middle. <laughs> I feel like I was on The Price is Right. Um, uh, my name's Kadia. I'm a uh, journalist fellow at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford, uh, and I'm also a U.S. politics reporter with Yahoo News. Uh, I, I read the report, and I, I really thoroughly like the, the solutions that were offered, and I think that many of them are aggressive in my point of view, but I think that's necessary in such a volatile mediascape that we're, we're seeing right now. But given that, I'm so interested in the fact of when it comes to implement, implementing a solution such as the IPA, which is long-term, versus something more short-term as was recommended, such as media literacy or standards set uh, for platforms. Um, when it comes to such change management, we always need champions. So who do you think those champions should be? Is it the citizens who you've mentioned are apathetic and disengaged, or is it the platforms who are competing for avenue, like revenue? And then the other side of it, is it the government, even though you've said that the, the solution should be totally different, regulators should be totally separate from the government so as to not, you know, control truth. Uh, so who are the champions? Is it the journalists, the citizen, the government platform? That's my question. <laughs> um, we need an influencer, right, I think. Well, I, I can give, we need a I can give my quick one and see if Damien agrees. Um, I'll be a first. Yeah, he will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, it, I think that, in a sense, it's, it's, there's an element of, let's call it self-interest in this, that I don't see this entirely. I mean, I don't want to be naive. There will be an element of, uh, I, I don't know, policing, if you like, around any regulation. You're setting rules, aren't you? Uh, you're setting sort of standards in some way. But I think there is a sort of self-interest, which means that there would be, I am being naive here, that there, would, there is a, a reason for various sectors to champion this. I mean, I, I'm a journalist, so I think that the most blindingly obvious thing, and Polly is responding in these terms, for journalism is to say, look, there's all this dreadful stuff out there. We are better than that. So they should be championing some of the processes we're talking about uh, I think the platforms you know Tim Cook has appreciated Facebook appreciated, they are at risk uh, of screwing the whole wonderful gold mine they have and the opportunities they provide uh, and they do provide extraordinary opportunities uh, for people and resource if they get this wrong they should be championing this much more uh, rather than seeing it always as a threat and you could go on I mean I was about to say that politicians should see this as an opportunity, but, you know, um, but there is there that, uh, opportun uh, I mean, when you think about the difficulties of politicians trying to, to, to build a conversation or some kind of um, coherence around a, a policy process like Brexit or even something simpler, they have an interest as an institution that's also held in low regard to champion not being perfect and virtuous, and, uh, but at least appreciating that there needs to be a new settlement, there needs to be people who are influential. But in that sense, I don't think that we see the IPA as some sort of meta-leader that dictates the terms of this debate. I think we see it much more as trying to um, yeah, coordinate 
um, try and set out the terms of the debate, actually, uh, before you start, that would be what we should be championing, not a particular uh, solution. Damien, disagree? <laughs> or agree? Um, I think it's a brilliant question, and, and it reminds me of something which, thinking about the kind of long-term history of media policy, I'm constantly frustrated by, which is we seem to have forgotten how to do media policy. I'm not sure we can rely on champions for this. I think maybe it's too important to rely on champions, although one of our recommendations that people seem to have missed is that we're recommending media literacy for politicians. Um, but let's look at how we have been doing this. Okay? Think about the select committees, both sides of the Atlantic and also in, uh, in the European Parliament, uh, calling the... Um, CEOs of social media platforms up to grill them and publicly humiliate them in a completely ineffective way. Um, I've watched select committees uh, asking Twitter about why specific tweets have not been taken down. And when Twitter protests, they say, but we told you about it in our hearings last year. Um, this is a really um, pathetic way of making policy on the basis of very poor information if we think about the long-term history of media policy, there have been principles. There have been principles that this should be above the parties. So how was the BBC set up? There were uh, committees of wise men, and they were all men, and it was pale, male, and stale, and we would do things differently now. But there was a process which is above politics. There are clear terms of reference. There are objectives. There is, a pro there, there, there is research to support it. In relation to the platforms, in relation to these new harms... What do I see? The government is going to release a white paper uh, next year. Um, there have been, there's been a, a process relating to a digital charter. How many people knew about that? There is one, your, just your students. one rather, <laughs> rather unlively uh, web page out there that you can find. There is zero public involvement. There is zero civil society oversight for some of re these really sensitive questions that affect political debate. So in answer to the question, I think you know, we don't really need champions. We need a proper process. And our recommendation, just to clarify for the IPA, is long-term in the sense that we want it to be here to stay, but it's short-term in the sense that we think this should be set up now. Okay, let's um, come down the hill a little bit. We haven't done much in the, down in the middle here, have we? Um, we've got this <coughs> person here. Okay. What you're doing is really vitally important. I want to... Sorry, I'm Maggie Ellis. I coordinate the European Group for e-Technology. That came out of a European project and started here in 2010. We have people cross-sector from academia, industry, service providers, policymakers, and users. Um, one thing which I want to make sure you include in your report, maybe as a small appendices or something, we are being sold short by the UK government in 2007, they signed the Tallinn Declaration. This was a declaration 
where the European states agreed they would improve digital services. Without that, many people in the country can't access any of this rubbish or jargon or dangerous stuff that you're talking about. And we are in big trouble because that's the case for many people in parts of this country. And if you look at other countries, Estonia, where the Tallinn Declaration was signed, is leading the way about using digital services. They have open access to all their records. They can access their health records from anywhere in the world. This isn't as a generous gesture from the Estonian government to its society. It saves money. It encourages a healthier and well-being in society. And unfortunately, the UK lags sadly behind. The tragedy is that although the government signed the Tallinn Declaration, I have seen a letter from the Minister for Digital Services at the time to the Minister for Digital Services in Scotland saying, oh yes, we signed the declaration, but there's no funding being put towards it. And that is devastating. Please, what are you going to do about it? Thanks. Possibly in appendices. Anyone want to jump in that, Sonia? Um, As a footnote, I will say exactly the same about media literacy, which was put into the Communications Act, um, but with almost no money behind it, money since withdrawn, so no money behind it. So without money, the policy doesn't happen, and it's absolutely a problem. Um, I don't um, have an answer to your observation, but I, and I'm not um, someone here knows more about Estonia than I do. But I do think that what the, the Estonian experiment is being watched very closely all over Europe, and it raises a couple of questions. One is about the extraordinary data on all the citizens that the Estonian government now has, which is entered into through public-private partnerships, which is therefore also data in certain ways available to the platforms that we are precisely worried about. And so I think there's a whole set of privacy questions that arise, and they become perhaps more acute um, when you move from thinking about Estonia to some of the other governments in Europe that we could think about. Um, I'll leave people to make their own decision about their trust in this one. But I think, I think these are very serious questions when we, when we try to go more digital in terms of our relation between citizen and state. Monday. Thank you. Hello. Uh, my name's Adam Kinsley. I'm the Director of Policy at Sky. Um, it's so really good report. The, the analysis you just did was spot on. It, it concords with everything that we've looked at and seen, um, and the conclusions are um, feel very similar to a report that we commissioned, plus um, I was at an event with the NSPCC to come to the same conclusion, organisations like Dot Everyone saying the same thing, um, and it feels like if everybody's gone away and looked at this and come up with exactly the same conclusion of this sort of layer, principles-based, with some um, minimal um, interventions, but with some information-gathering powers to get the evidence base. Everyone's saying exactly the same thing, um, and I absolutely agree it needs to happen now as a short term. How do we actually make this happen? <laughs> what are we waiting for? Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, I mean God forbid that the LSE would make anything happen, but... Um, um, well, I think... Well, I mean, these are the questions that um, Francis Cancross mm. is debating that report. I mean, there feels like a head of steam behind this now that has a legislative map ahead because you have that report coming out in the new year, there's a white paper, there's... Um, there's select committee. Yeah, there's select committee. There's, you know, there's things that should lead to these things. And I think, like... The evidence I see is all of the platforms starting to get really antsy about this and to anticipate it coming. So I think that's a really good sign, but I don't, it's definitely not in my power. Who haven't made their mind up, and yet everyone else that has looked at this has come to the same conclusion that something needs to happen now, which isn't boiling the ocean, it's just getting the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all agreed. <laughs> Next one. I should, should, uh, sorry, should also add that, that Damien Collins, who unfortunately couldn't be here with us this evening, who is the chair of the select committee in charge of this report which we're expecting this side of Christmas, which should feed recommendations into the white paper. Damien Collins was a member of the commission, um, so uh, that doesn't mean he endorses the report, but hopefully it means he will read it. Yeah. <laughs> has read it. If he hasn't already. Of course he has. And let's, let's give one of my colleagues there, in the, in the centre there with the sumptuous scarf. Hi there. Um, Teo Costa from uh, Portland, so comms agency, so dark side. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'm wondering whether this, that there's not a more fundamental question that we're looking to answer here, which is how do you break the divide in between or how do you marry up the need for innovation, the need for these platforms to come up with new models, for Google to come to exist and yet for us to have systems and policies and processes and everything that we need to in place to ensure that citizens have the right access to information that they deserve. What, can I just do a return question to you? What do you think is the contradiction there? What, why do you think that, that it's one... Why do you think... Sorry, can, give, give her back the phone that... <laughs> Can I give her back the microphone, please? Sorry. Why do you think there's a contradiction there? Why can't you have both? You're implying there's a tension between innovation am, yeah. and responsibility. Um, I think Dr. Damien exemplified it best when you mentioned the, um, I suppose, the, when, when a senator asked Zuckerberg about ads and the response had to be, Senator, we run ads. I think that exemplifies the gap and the tension that we have in between our political system and Silicon Valley. Yeah. I think there is definitely a sense of this being so fiendishly complicated and the actors involved having such different approaches on it and the international dimension that was mentioned earlier. Um, and, you know, it is a scary problem to try and fix. 
Um, and it does take, in some ways, kind of global action as well. And you see what's happening around the digital sales tax at the moment. That needs a global response. So I'd, I'm not sure whether this answers your question, but, you know, and, and it's not a particularly clever point to say that this is really, really hard and really complicated. And that's probably the biggest blocker to it. Can I, can I come back on, on this point at the risk of being a bit theoretical? Um, very often we think about innovation as though it kind of happens in a vacuum and there's innovation over here and then there's law, policy and regulation over here and somehow one is going to suffocate the other um, and it's going to be law and policy. Um, you know, if we think back over the development of the platform economy social media over the last 15 years. This didn't happen in a vacuum. This didn't happen uh, as the, um, the consequence of the internet protocol standards or the World Wide Web standards. Yep. It happened because of a variety of factors, including the settlement that was reached on liability of internet service providers and content hosts in the 1990s. So, um, you know, the, the U.S. scholar Jonathan Zittrain calls the liability exemptions a subsidy. So the reason the platforms can grow so huge is partly because they're not held responsibly, responsible for content in the same way as other Internet publishers might be if they come from the legacy media, for example. So, because they're, um, not arg they're arguing that they're not publishers, right? We need to think about, exactly. We, we need to think about the, the institutional framework um, of the next phase of the internet and think about what we want to incentivize. So the government has proposed a digital services tax. Um, it's proposed that tax in a way which is completely independent of any kind of social incentives it wants to establish. One part of government is talking about harms. The other part is talking about tax. And this is not a tax which is being designed like taxes on alcohol and tobacco in order to, be, in order to incentivize certain behaviors. It's just being designed as a way of, of generating some revenue um, which who knows what it will be, done, we, be, be used for. So that revenue can can be used to incentivize certain kinds of behavior. It can be used to um, uh, fund certain goods. So we need to think about not innovation over here and regulation somehow as necessarily stifling it. Stifling it. The two go together, and they always have. Great. Uh, I think we should go back over that side of the room. Uh, let's go the, the, the gentleman there in the grey top. Is it? Hi, my name is Daniel um, Elkin. I'm a freelance journalist. Um, the Guardian's got this brilliant recipe for Baba Ganoush. I didn't write the recipe, um, but I use it a lot. But if the Guardian disappeared, I wouldn't be worried about the lack of Baba Ganoush recipe because you can find lots of different Baba Ganoush recipes. I'd be worried about the lack of the investigative features that the Guardian does, which are brilliant and they you know, hold power to account. And so if there was scope for, or do, my question is, do you think there's scope for investigative journalism to be given a kind of, almost like a welfare state for, you know, for that kind of reporting because it's so important for society? 
Well, it's worth saying that the Bab Ganoush is paying for WikiLeaks and um, Windrush and all of those things. Like, certainly in print, that bundle is what makes it work. That I mean, didn't one, answer the question. I mean, one of the things we do, one of the things suggested tentatively in the report is a news innovation fund. One of the functions of that might be to um, not pay for investigative journalism per se, but to support, for example, innovation around that, training around that, you know, to, to seed, if you like, that kind of reporting. But I think, from my point of view, I agree with Polly, that it's always got to be part of, a, uh, of, an, of an ecosystem. You know, when you separate out those different functions, you do make them quite vulnerable. And the idea that, I mean, God help us, that, that they should be truly welfare and that the government should pay for investive journalism, then I think there is a, there is a definite contradiction there. So... We do have public service broadcasting. Yeah, but it's not, it's not the government paying for it. It's we pay for the BBC. Paying, we it, pay for the but BBC. But it, you know, yeah. it is a kind of solution to that mm. kind of problem. The problem is yeah. it isn't, by definition, plurality. Um, so mm. it can't be the sole solution. But it's, yeah. you know, it's one intervention. It's quite a good um, illustration. Should the public money pay for more Baba Ganoush innovation to pay, you know, to be a sustainable yeah. form of high right. quality news. That's a really good point. Yeah. Or should it pay for the thing? Yeah. I do like that. Oh. I've never cooked it myself. <laughs> right. Uh, and then could we just go straight across? Oh, I will come to you. The, uh, that there, the guy with his hand up. Sorry. Hi. Uh, I'm an LSE student studying politics and communication. Um, I haven't had a chance to read the report yet, um, but uh, I had a couple of questions. Um, one relates particularly to um, a point about one of the, the, the five giant evils. Um, I believe it was the third one, the fragmentation one. So I was wondering, um, this may well be in the report, but from the research, uh, does it lead to any uh, conclusions about whether that fragmentation is primarily caused by um, sort of, uh, demand-side uh, uh, sort of issues like uh, users self-sorting um, or is it a supply side thing um, with sort of algorithmic filter bubble kind of um, concepts or uh, media outlets starting to become more polarized in their um, media production uh, and the second question is more of a practical one uh, about how to sort of impose this kind of regulation um, Obviously, the, the firms that we're talking about here are largely American corporations that operate multinationally. Um, and I think it's merciful for us all that the uh, B word has not been mentioned very much this evening, but clearly that's the elephant in the room when we're sitting in London. Um, what, what will our capacity after Brexit be oh. to actually... Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, uh, to actually impose these kind of... Um, whether these, reg these are regulations, if there are taxes, um, these companies, whether it's Facebook, Amazon, Google, they've shown to be extremely adept at avoiding taxation uh, by uh, you know, being established uh, in like Luxembourg, for example. Um, how do you think that, uh, that we could, in the UK, have any kind of impact on this? Um, I think it was notable that uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, when he, he was invited to come to Parliament, uh, he chose not to, but instead went to the EU, uh, as well as obviously in front of the uh, Senate hearing as well. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I'll take the first part, which I think is easier than the second part of your question. Really? Um, 
Both. Um, both and more. Um, so fragmentation, I mean, what we have is a dynamic. And so we're, I think we've tried to resist the desire to say it's either the technology or the public in their desire. You know, people are learning, and especially young people are learning, what kind of a media environment is offered to them and they find themselves in an environment which pushes them, which offers always the next more extreme thing and the next thing that is more like the thing they've already had. Um, and kind of, so, so there's a dynamic of, as it were, both for the public and uh, for the society. But we do also try to say in the report, you know, this is, fragmentation is um, added to, made problematic by the digital platforms, but it is in the wider society. Um, and there are many other things going wrong in our societies, of which the B word is only one, which are causing greater fragmentation and, you know, and we could point to inequality and all kinds of um, uh, societal tensions. Um, so there are reasons why people are kind of positioned so that they are, as it were, more ready for certain kinds of extreme or um, familiar content that we, that we need to look at. I think what we're saying about the platforms is that that's one of the ready, ready, relatively ready levers of change. Um, and, you know, if we could deal with global injustice, that would be a better way to go, a better solution. But right now, for this particular problem in the information um, ecology, dealing with the particular ways in which the, the algorithms on the platforms exacerbate the problem um, is, is something that we can try to fix. I mean, on the evidence, the, the, I mean, I think the honest answer is that when we did the literature reviews that we did behind this report, we didn't ask that specific question about demand side and supply side. My personal view is I think it's both. I think there is research which shows that we perhaps overestimated the extent to which people seek truth and that you know, th this is a big part of the problem we have when shifting to a situation in which the gatekeepers and filters are users themselves. On the Brexit point, um, I think there are some very practical things. The government has now announced that they will review the provisions of the e-commerce directive, and in particular the liability exemptions for internet service providers and hosts uh, after Brexit. So we still don't know what's happening with Brexit, um, but there is an opportunity for a new kind of settlement on at least liability after Brexit. The same goes for tax. I think, the, um, interestingly, the digital service t services tax was um, uh, announced by the European Commission in February <laughs> uh, before it was announced by the, the UK government. I think that there are... Um, there is a consensus building that the holiday is over in terms of um, taxation and there will be some sort of necessarily transnational solution. Um, and I think that, uh, that there is just a stronger consensus here and indeed we've had that announcement of, of, of the tax. So I think that whatever happens in Brexit, there is a head of steam and a consensus building both on liability and on tax, that something should be done. But as I say, I think it's, we're really at the beginning of this process. So if we want to introduce new kinds of incentives and change behavior using fiscal policy, we're going to need to think very carefully about what precisely is done. So one quick... You still want to...? 
Sorry, you had a hand up all the way through this. Down, right down the front, please. Sorry. Right, sorry. To, thank you. <coughs> Keep it tight. We're running out of time. All right, all right. Very good. Um, so it was fascinating discussion, fascinating analysis. One thing that I was struck by was there wasn't very much interrogation about this um, dependency on ad funding. And I wonder what kind of dystopian nightmare we will live in if um, the ad agency suddenly stop funding our free emails, right. our free services. So I wonder whether you thought about that or is it just a, a nature, the nature of the beast that you're willing to live with. The other thing is, um, get, say you get everything that you want, the, the IPA, the media literacy, the greater bargaining power between publishers and platforms, and not in a trite way, but quite honestly, what does good look like for both citizens and the industry, what, what kind of outcomes would you expect or would you hope for? And is that different to what you're willing to live with? I think it's a really good way to get a final response from all three of you, actually. What does, yeah, what does good look like? Um, well, I suppose um, if I were to put up the five evils again, it would be to wipe them off the slide, as it were, um, that we don't have uh, apathy, disillusion, um, cynicism and so forth. Of course, the, you know, to go back to what I just said, um, there are many sources of those problems of which the information environment is one part, but um, at this point I might take a lessening of those problems and a greater sense that people were trusting, um, contributing, feeling agentic, so thinking from the citizen side. Um, uh, I can see what, what progress is going to look like. I don't have to define heaven. Amy? We, we, we do pay for free stuff. Um, you've heard the cliches, right? We pay with our data. We are the product. Um, there are micropayment and other alternative membership and other kinds of models which might be better. They might be, uh, they're already out there, and they might, in a world after advertising or after the kind of targeted advertising, um, uh, actually work a little better. So I think we should be open to uh, trying to regain civic control, if you like, of this technology in all sorts of creative ways. And I don't think we should be stuck with one advertising model which uh, is being revealed to, that, that it can do damage. Um, so the, there's a part of me that says good riddance to advertising. Um, we want the money, we want the revenues... Um, but advertising wasn't a particularly nice way to do it. It made us do things we didn't want to do in terms of volume. Um, you know, would the Guardian always do babaganoush recipes like they might do a bit less, but they need to sell the papers? Advertising had consequences. I, you know, hopefully there'll be new forms, um, and I'll take advertising over anything at the moment because, you know, there was money there. Um, but there is a sense of good riddance. In terms of what good looks like, I'd say it looks like proper civic discourse that's informed and, um, and flourishes on good information. Great. I think that's a very good place to end. I want to repeat my thanks to all the people that have been part of this whole commission process. And that includes you now, I'm afraid. Uh, and I want to stress that it does continue. And just to disprove one point, there is such a thing as a kind of free drink. There are drinks outside tonight. So thank you very much to my colleagues and thanks to you.